Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey leaders, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting our important work this past year as we grow to master leadership collectively. And as we close out 2018, here are the top 10 most listened to episodes. We look forward to continuing to add value in 2019. Enjoy. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire, and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions, and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we get to speak with Matthew Cook. Every leadership journey is different, but some are more traditional than others. Matt Cook started his career as a social worker in the addiction field and is now the superintendent of schools at Newark Central, a district of about 2,100 students located in the Finger Lakes region between Rochester and Syracuse, New York. As a social worker, Matt was always more drawn to the macro-level systems issues than the micro-level work associated with individual counseling. As he developed new skills, his curiosity led him to new academic and professional challenges. Matt believes that leading is a privilege and loves the challenges of creating a culture and climate that is accepting of the need for change. He's fond of pointing out that we do not want to do things just because that's how they've always been done. And we do not want to chase shiny new objects just because they are shiny and new. We want to be proactive and deliberate in decision-making that puts the resources in the best place to allow for students and staff success. Getting an entire organization and community to try things a different way can be scary, but if we do not change our practices, our students will not be prepared for an ever-changing future. So welcome, Matthew Cook. How are you? I'm good. How are you today? I'm doing well. We're so happy to have you on our podcast. So as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So Matt, are you ready to pour into our listeners? Sure. Awesome. Matt, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? Yeah, happy to. First of all, just wanted to say thanks for having me on. It's an honor to be considered for being able to talk about something as audacious as master leadership. I'm not sure we qualify, but we'll be happy to walk through the process. <laughs> the purpose is for all of us to master leadership together. I hear you. Yeah, my wife refers to my path as my forest gumping my way through a career. So uh, let me explain that. I started out as a social worker working actually in a group home. I had the nine at night to nine in the morning shift in a group home for uh, boys who were diagnosed with different mental and emotional issues. And, you know, that was coming straight out of college. And then Wound up from there working in the addictions field for a while, about a dozen years field as a social worker, both in prevention and some in treatment. And then in that experience, I was doing some community work in a town called Lyons, New York, which is in between Rochester and Syracuse. And we were starting a 
community-based group that was going to be a coalition around trying to fight the substance abuse issues in that region. And I was the community-based provider. I was working for an agency called the Council on Alcoholism. The woman who became my wife was one of the school-based reps. She was a health teacher at the school. And so we met through that committee, actually. It was uh, kind of ironic. And then several years later, the school was looking to write a grant for substance abuse and violence prevention. And they asked me to help write the grant because I was familiar with the district and I knew a lot of the players there. And we wrote the grant. We were successful in getting the grant. So I came on board at Lyons Central School in a violence and substance abuse prevention capacity as a social worker. Just as that grant was running out, the elementary school counselor was leaving for a different position. And so I became the elementary school social worker. I had the really fun opportunity during that period of time to work in the same building that my wife was a teacher in and all three of my kids were attending. So it was a great family experience within my work experience. From there, I was tapped on the shoulder to get into something that the Wayne Finger Lakes BOCES region has called the Leadership Institute. It's a really unique program where the goal is to home grow some administrative talent. And so each district pays a small amount of money in every year into this organization. And then four local colleges and universities participate in the cohorts. We're now, I think, up to cohort 16 in this. I was in the third cohort back in 2003, I think. We go through an academic experience for a class that's taught by a local superintendent that's affiliated with one of the universities. And then we pick one of the four universities. We go for our administrative certification and then do an internship at usually at our local district. Mm -hmm. That was a really neat opportunity for me to take advantage of. And from there, I got my administrative certification and became the director of special programs for Lyons Central School. That job sort of morphed a little bit as the district expanded and as the state was taking on the initial Regents Reform agenda, as APPR was just becoming something everybody was paying attention to. And I became the director of educational programs at Lyons. From there, I went to Wayne Central and was the Director of Human Resources for a while. That's also in Wayne County. And currently, I'm the Superintendent of Schools at Newark Central, which is, again, also in Wayne County, New York. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for sharing your journey. Your background in social work, do you feel like that really helped to hone your leadership skills? I don't think there's any question. I know that my path to a superintendency is somewhat not traditional. I was not a classroom teacher and I was not a principal. And those are two of the sort of mainstays of how most people get into school administration. But for me, I, I joke sometimes that I don't know how you can do this job without some sort of counseling or human yes. relations background, because yeah. most of what a superintendent does is think about systems and organizational structures and then deal with adult problems. Right. And so there's a tremendous amount of that work that I feel like I'm still doing in the background in social work, both at a macro and a micro level, has been incredibly valuable to me. Yes, I can imagine. Because leadership skills really has to do with social-emotional skills, a big part of leading well. So how would you describe your leadership style? I think the first word that comes to mind when I think about that is team. I'm somebody who prefers consensus. I want the group that we're working with to want to understand why we want to go a particular direction and then pick up the torch and want to go with us. Mm -hmm. I know that there are times when you're a leader where you have to you know, plant a flag and say, this is how this has to be. For me, those times are almost always related to emergencies, crisis, or safety and security. Mm -hmm. I think trying to change and shape culture, if you're trying to make a significant impact, especially in a large organizations. You know, Newark Central is 2,100 kids with about 450 employees. Certainly not as large as a city school district, but it's certainly, a, you know, what I would think of as a relatively large organization. 
and making the kinds of changes that you want to make in order to have students have the most positive experience they could possibly have, that takes time. And it doesn't come from a memo. Right. It comes from dialogue and conversation and hearing what the people who are going to be implementing the changes need from you in order to make it happen. So speaking of teams, mm-hmm. what does it mean to you to have a good team and how would you build or sustain one? There's a few things that I think are key to that. It starts with the hiring process. So whether you're talking about hiring teachers or you're talking about hiring your administrative team, I'm a firm believer that you can teach people how to do things. What you have a harder time doing is teaching people things like work ethic, the ability to get along with others, how to play well in the sandbox. Mm -hmm. Uh, So our interview process is much more about trying to find the right person and then we can teach them what we need to teach them. But if we don't find the right person who wants to go on this journey with us, if we don't find that collaborator, the person who's willing to speak up and have their voice heard and, and have us be able to grow with them. You know, one of my beliefs around leadership is that you should surround yourself with smart people who are willing to disagree. Right. <laughs> I don't need to be the smartest person in the room. In fact, for me, the smartest person in the room is the room. It's a George Kiros quote, but it's one that's resonated with me. I'm just curious, what's one of the key questions that you ask in the hiring process? You know, one of the questions that people always ask is, what are your strengths and weaknesses? And if I hear one more, <laughs> and, then, and then an answer that has to do with perfectionism, it makes you want to pull your hair out. So mm-hmm. try to reframe things a little bit. So I'll ask questions like, if I was to gather together a group of people who liked you, what would they say about you? And then the follow-up is, if I was together a group of people who didn't care for you very much, what would they say about you? That's another way to get at strengths and weaknesses, but it usually makes people pause. It usually makes people uncomfortable. Another way that I'll ask a question along that line is, tell me about a time or a situation where you wish you had a do-over. I'm looking at, is somebody going to be able to, in an interview process, honestly reflect on a time where they really wish something had gone differently? And then what did they learn from that? We've all had them. Everybody's had them. And so if somebody can't come up with one, then I don't believe that, (laughs) or it means that they don't have a lot of insight into their own behavior. So the other thing that I'll say about the interview process, and this is especially true when I'm hiring administrators, I've spent a lot of time with my team talking about who we want as part of this team. And in the interview, 100% of the people that I have hired as administrators in this district are people who made me laugh during the interview. Uh, that says three things to me. First, it says, if you're going to make me laugh, you're smart because you've said something clever. You've said something interesting and you've done it in a humorous way. It also says you're a risk taker. You probably shouldn't try to make me laugh in an interview. (laughs) (laughs) But if you're willing to try, and hopefully we've set the tone in the room that allows for that, and if you're willing to take a little bit of a risk, I appreciate that. And then the third thing is it says that laughter is important. These are very difficult, stressful jobs. And if we can't laugh along the line, then we're going to have a hard time getting through the day. So that's a non-negotiable for me. If you're going through an interview process with me, we're going to have to be able to have some fun in that process, or else you're probably not going to make it to the next stitch. Well, I appreciate that. That's certainly a great perspective. I think about the interview process and it can be daunting. It can be nerve wracking, but it also says to me that you've set the groundwork for that. I think that that goes back to one of your earlier questions about how does my social work background help? So one of the things that social workers do is they comment on the process. So somebody comes into an interview, one of the first things that I'll say is, All right, let's just acknowledge that this is a really artificial and awkward situation. I love that, Matthew. And let's have some fun with that. It usually helps people to feel a little more comfortable. It certainly lets 
the guards down. So I appreciate that. And then you get the real person, which is smart. If we can't figure out who the real person is, then we run the risk of not hiring the kind of person that we want to be on this team. Right. So Matt, which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? We had the pleasure of working with George Kiros, who wrote The Innovator's Mindset this summer. And, you know, and he says, the smartest person in the room is the room. And I firmly believe that. But I think the other thing that resonates with me, I don't know how much of a quote it is, but it's certainly a mantra that I say over and over again. And any of the people who work in Newark who might be listening to this will start to roll their eyes because they know what I'm going to say. And that's that I don't want us to do things because that's the way they've always been done. And I don't want us to chase the shiny new object just because it's shiny and new. I want us to be very thoughtful and deliberative about the decisions that we make. I want us to have a process. I want us to have a plan that we're following. I think those are the two biggest traps that organizations fall into is that, well, this is how we've always done it. Or yeah, I want to do that because so-and-so school district down the road is doing it and it looks cool, even though it might have been a great decision for them and fit into their culture and where they're at, but it might not make sense for us. Mm, You're absolutely right. Now, Matt, what type of leader are you inspired by and why? Probably the two most important things that I've resonated with in my life are when I feel like the people who are leading me care about me and want me to grow. Mm. And they're willing and able to challenge my thinking. I was very fortunate as I was going through the superintendent's development program to have worked with a man named Mike Ford, who's a retired superintendent who now works. I've heard his name before. Now works at the University of Rochester. And as I was going through that program, Um, You know, I was always one of those people, like a lot of folks who wind up in jobs like ours. You know, I was good at school. I know how to do school well, right? So I'm going through the superintendent development program and treating it in some ways similar to a class and want to make sure that the quote unquote professor knows that I know what I'm talking about. I wound up talking too much. And he gave me some very pointed feedback about that and was one of the first people to really give me pointed feedback in a while because sometimes people won't do that. And I took it to heart and I really tried to think about what I was doing and how that might impact the other people who were in the class. And it's something that I've tried to think about regularly since then. So I think that when people are brave enough to tell you something that you need to hear, you ought to listen. (laughs) That's right. Well, you know, Matt, that says to us that you're open to feedback, which is really important because that's how we grow as leaders. And also, I appreciate your transparency and authenticity because sometimes we do talk too much. It's certainly an occupational hazard as a superintendent. Especially in education, because we know so much. Sure, yeah. If, if only you just listen to this brilliant insight that I have. And I think that that's where the sense of humor has to come in, too. I'm probably at my best when I'm not taking myself too seriously. That's really important. Now, what's the best advice you've ever received? Yeah, that's a great question. A couple of things. Back in my social work days, one of my professors talked about needing to have a high tolerance for ambiguity. So. Mm. That is certainly something that has resonated with me throughout my whole career. And in this job in particular, when you're talking about systemic change and cultural change and working with labor union associations and community groups and parents and students and you know, all of the different folks who have a stake in the success of a school district, things are rarely black and white and things are rarely clear cut. And those things are almost always having to do with safety and security or ethical situations that are cut and dry. And almost everything else is complicated. And so having that high tolerance for ambiguity is important. The other thing though, that had to do with just sort of career path was really helpful to me, was just the idea of being open to different possibilities and not getting your heart set on a particular job. So if you 
that time, I've got a little story about that. Sure. I mentioned earlier that I was tapped on the shoulder when I was working at Lyon Central Schools as a social worker to get into the leadership program. And it was an assistant superintendent who said, you know, we like what we see out of you. We think that you could do some great things. The elementary principal is going to be retiring soon, so we need to get somebody ready for that job. So I went into the leadership institute in that program thinking that the Lyons elementary principalship was the job that I was going to have. I was explicitly told that, you know, that was the thing that I was getting ready for, and that's how that should work. So long story somewhat shorter, when I left Lyons to go to Wayne Central, I had already been an administrator in that district for, I think, six or seven years. And the elementary school principal that I was supposed to replace was still in the chair. (laughs) I went to Wayne Central, uh, was there for a while, and then I came to Newark. And I think I was in my second or third year at Newark when I went back to Lyons and had the honor of speaking at that principal's retirement party. So if I had stayed and waited for that one particular job, then I wouldn't have had all the other experiences along the line. And I've definitely seen that as a trap that people get into. They either want to work in a particular district or they want a particular job. That's difficult, but if you start to feel entitled to it, that's even tougher. Mm -hmm. And I think just being open to positions that might be a good fit for you, but that also stretch you, I think are really important because then you continue to learn. Yeah, that flexibility. And I appreciate that story because it does bring it home. I mean, I've experienced things like that when you're set on something and especially if you're a doer, you're set on something and that's the trajectory that um, you really want to go in and then it shifts. But being able to be flexible is important. Now, you said high tolerance for ambiguity. How does that translate for you? I think one of the things that's important about that concept is the idea that there are a lot of different ways to view a situation. And people come to situations usually wanting to give their best, usually wanting to get a resolution that makes sense for them. And they come in with the information that they have. I think that it happens that people lie. It happens that people obfuscate. It happens that people are trying to get over. But more often than not, I believe that people are trying to do the best they can with what they have. And when that's the case, and there are differing points of view or differing experiences, then you need to be able to think about things through the lens of somebody else and walk in their shoes a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as a for instance, we've got a fair number of folks who live in our community who come from a poverty background who might not have had the greatest experience in school themselves and now they're parents. And we all who work here, right, teachers and administrators and whatnot, we generally were people who understood school, liked school, liked the structure of school, responded to it well, and that's why we're working here. And so, you know, when we ask a parent to come in and then sit them around the table with five to 10 people who are going to tell them what's wrong with their kid or how they're raising their kid, that's their perspective of what the meeting's about. Our perspective of the meeting is we want to help your student. We want to help this child be the best version of themselves. But when we're starting from really different places, it's sometimes hard to get to the place where we can all hear each other. I think that it becomes really important for us to try to think about not just what we want to accomplish, but what the other person that we're having a conversation with or having a meeting with or trying to solve a problem with wants to accomplish, and then try to work towards a thorough, real understanding of each other. Yeah, and that takes practice for sure. I love how you talk about thinking the best first, right? Mm -hmm. Because that does help us to put ourselves in other people's shoes. Now, Matt, can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life? Sure. I referred a little while ago to the fact that I started out working in the addictions field. So without getting too deep into it, it's fair to say that I have addiction in my family. 
and seeing how that's affected family members, people that I love, and then some of the decisions that I've made about how I want to live has been an overarching theme and, and shape in my experience. I wound up quitting drinking when I was 15 or 16 years old. That's around the time when most people start. <laughs> wow. And I don't think of myself as an alcoholic or refer to myself that way but I certainly was headed down that path. And if I'd continued down the path that I'd started, knowing mm -hmm. I know about addiction and genetics and, and family systems, then I'm sure that my life would have turned out to be extraordinarily different than it is now. So I think that that theme and dealing with the things that go along with that do put other problems in perspective, right? So when somebody's upset about whether or not you know, their child is getting enough playing time or whether or not negotiations with the unit is going as well as you'd like it to, those are hard and those are real and those are problems that are worth talking about and worth working through, but they're not life and death. And I think that when you have some difficult experiences in your life, and certainly everybody has a version of difficult experiences in their life, it helps put some of the other stuff in perspective. Right. If you've dealt with those things, there's a quote, I think, by John Maxwell, where he says, it's not experience that really drives you or teaches you. It's reflecting on the experiences, right? Yep, exactly. Yep. And so I really appreciate you sharing this. I mean, I'm sure there's a whole lot of us that can really relate to this. And it helps us to have a perspective on how to help other people. Hey, leaders, stay tuned for the rest of the interview following this brief message. If you haven't downloaded your copy of the Master Leadership Journal, go to masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ to get instant access and begin growing your leadership with questions that have been curated by top-level leaders. I've also included some cool extras for you at masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ. Can you tell us about one of your greatest successes? I'm going to tell a story that has to do, I think, with leadership and culture, but it, it doesn't have to do with the job. So okay. one of the things that I had the absolute pleasure of doing was I was a uh, softball coach for nine years as my two daughters went through the little league system in the town where we lived. And the first eight years, we came in second place every year. Mm -hmm. uh, we were that team that couldn't quite win the championship. But every year we had the best time. And I was honored to be nominated as you know, manager of the year most of those years by my peers. And I think that there was the consistency with which our kids always performed but also the fun that we had was widely recognized. You know, I remember because, you know, we would have tryouts and then sort of a draft of new players each year. And every year, my assistant coaches and I would choose the kids that we felt like we would have the most success teaching, not necessarily the best athletes and the kids that we would wind up having the most fun with. And we were consistent in doing that every year. There were some students that we passed up on because, yep, that kid's a great athlete and we would probably win, but an attitude, they already think they know everything. Um, not interested in working in that way. So did you focus on honing skills as far as social emotional skills? Absolutely. So in creating team. So culture was important. So here's the end of the story. So it's my last year coaching. It's my youngest daughter's last year playing. And we're in the championship game. And a girl is up to bat. The bases are loaded. You know, if this was in a Hollywood movie, you'd say it was right. great. <laughs> bases were loaded. This girl's up to bat. And she's a great kid. She's not the best athlete. She hits periodically. Uh, and she gets super nervous. So first pitch comes in and she swings and it's a wild mess. And I'm coaching first base. And so I call time and I just yell down to her. I said, step out of the box. 
and I just say, close your eyes, right? Like, and right now I'm just looking at this girl and we're having a conversation. And it goes back to all of the things that we've been working on prior to this. And all the parents can hear and all the other teammates you know, are around sort of watching us, but I sort of tuned all that out. I'm just looking at this girl and I tell her, close your eyes. Think about what you want to have happen when the pitch comes in. Visualize it. What do you want to have happen? And that was supposed to be a rhetorical question, right? Like I was just trying to get her into the mental place of not being nervous. And she points to the outfield, <laughs> like Babe Ruth. Everybody laughs. And she steps back into the box, and she hits it into the outfield. And we oh. Unbelievable. Oh, um, wow. And so, you know, I tell that story because that my experience coaching that team for that many years was about a couple of things that then helped hone how I wanted to be a leader in other contexts. Culture matters, paying attention, knowing your players, so knowing your employees, knowing your teammates matters, knowing what they need trying to give them what they need. And then the values around how you put a team together and what matters around trying to put a team together. And I'd much rather work with people who are willing to work hard and people who have some innate ability but aren't interested in working on it. So as a leader, do you still consider yourself a coach? Yeah, you know, I think that that's fair. And not only that, but I have a coach. I have a retired superintendent that I work with who coaches me. One of the things that we've done at Newark is We've increased the number of instructional coaches that we have to work with our teachers by a considerable factor. When I came, I think we had 1.8 full-time equivalent employees, so three people at 0.6 each of their jobs devoted to instructional coaching, and we now have 11 FTEs devoted to instructional coaching. I think coaching is incredibly important. I don't think people get better unless they have an honest way to get feedback that is non-evaluative, that is sort of low stakes, and the idea that you are willing to be vulnerable, willing to open your door, willing to have a peer come in. Because our coaches are all teachers. They're not administrators. Teachers helping teachers. And we've really started to see some movement in terms of how people are accepting that and working on that and wanting to get better. And that's been a real culture shift here. And you know, Matt, that's not typical of educational settings where coaching is important. Mm -hmm. So I'm really encouraged about that because I tend to believe that if you don't know how to coach, then it's going to impede your leadership. Yeah, and I think that that's exactly right. So for me, I need to model that too. So I need to be open to feedback and I need to take coaching myself or else it would feel very hypocritical. Right. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, Matt, what would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about their working climate or culture? Well, I think the first thing is that they can take care of their own actions and they can't control everything else. So when you're trying to change climate and culture, it can be easy to take on too much responsibility with that. So the first thing I would say is this, honesty matters more than anything else. If you're in a leadership position and you're not telling the truth and you're not being completely forthright, then people are going to know it. If you're not consistent with your values, people are going to know it, and eventually it's going to be the death of you. So above all else, you have to tell the truth. The second thing that I would say is when you're trying to change culture and climate, what you're really talking about is creating an experience. These are not factories. These are not things we're assembling something in a static environment. Um, we're trying to shape human beings in education. You know, it's all about the students. Everything that we do has to be about the students. And I find culture and climate is sour when we're too focused on adult issues and adult problems. So we need to create an experience that is positive for kids, where kids want to learn, where kids are excited about being there. And if the adults aren't wanting to be there and aren't excited about being there, it will just translate 
negatively down. So experience is what we're trying to shape and consistency of what we do is what creates climate and culture. So there's this book called The Disney Experience that some of us were reading a little while ago. And, and while, you know, certainly the analogy of, of Disney to an educational institution is, is somewhat flawed, what's not flawed about it is the idea that we are responsible for creating an experience and we're the only ones who can create the experience. And if we are consistent in what we say and what we do, and that consistency translates into trying to get kids excited about learning and get kids excited about being in an educational environment, then that will catch on. But if we get caught up in what we can or can't do, what we should or shouldn't do based on the contract, what we feel like we're being asked to do, is it too much, is it not enough, uh, you know, all of those kinds of things, I think that that's where things can go sour. Telling the truth, creating experience and consistency requires time and being intentional, right? Yeah, I mean, all culture change. It's long-term work. You don't come into a building as an assistant principal or as a principal. You don't come into a district as a district-level administrator and think that you're going to send out a few snappy emails and everybody's going to fall in line. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had a guest on the show who said something that really just hit home, that our work in education is slow but important work. So we need to keep at it if we want things to change. And this is absolutely consistent with that. I really appreciate you just pouring into us. Now, I'm sure you've heard this in interviews. Many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you? And what are you learning now? That's a great question. I think that that means a couple of things to me. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm currently 50 years old when most people are winding down their careers I'm about halfway through the doctoral program at the University of Rochester. So the idea that I'm continuing academically, I think, is important to me. It's always been important to me. I've always sort of said that if time and money weren't an issue, I'd take a class every semester in something. I just like the learning experience. I don't always like writing papers. <laughs> I don't always like you know, all, all of the rigmarole that goes along with that. But I, I do like the process of having my mind stretched and my thinking challenged in a different way of thinking about things. So that's the formal way to think about it. But then there's just every other aspect of life. One of the things that I believe is absolutely true is that there are virtually an infinite number of lessons that are available to us at any given time, but we just have to be open to them. And most of the time we're not, or we're not there yet. And so even though that lesson or that way of thinking about something could have been learned, you know, we're not tuned into it right now because we're thinking about something else. So being open to all of life's lessons and growth opportunities is just interesting to me. And, you know, again, there are days where I do it better than others. There are days where I'm more open than others. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I find that, like I said earlier, that the times where I'm having fun and I'm not taking myself too seriously are the times where I'm probably at my best and learning best. I love that. And it's funny because when we first came on and I saw you have a very colorful shirt and tie on, immediately I smiled because um, I can tell you're having fun. Well, we try to. Today is a wear orange day in recognition of relationship violence among teenagers. And so, you know, I always try to participate in those days at the school. And so, you know, raising awareness around issues and participating with kids in different activities that they're doing is always fun. When I did the uh, intermediate schools obstacle course the other day, that was, uh, was a lot of fun. How did it go? Well, I made it through, uh, so I I figured that's fine. This is a a longstanding tradition in that building, and they have teachers versus the students. And So So did you train for that? (laughs) No. I I showed up that day and did it. Thank God you made Um, it, because it would have been really terrible if you didn't. Exactly. The kids have a great time. The kids team won, as they should have this year. Awesome. Now, Matt, 
if there were something you could change in education in the U.S., mm-hmm. what would that be? I mean, I think probably two things come to mind right away. The first and probably the most insidious is that we just culturally don't value public service like we used to. And to me, teachers ought to be on a pedestal. And because of that, they ought to act like they ought to be on a pedestal and they ought to be paid like they ought to be on a pedestal. But unfortunately, we're not always able to do that. That's a frustration that I think that we all have. Teachers do some of the most difficult work that I've ever seen. Good quality instruction is incredibly hard. It takes a tremendous amount of planning. People talk about the art and science of teaching, and it couldn't be more true. You have to know your kids. You have to know your content. You have to get your kids excited about what you're trying to teach them, whether it's skills or facts or whatever area you're in. And you have to take them along that journey with you. And it's incredibly hard work. And I unfortunately think we're at a place in society where we don't value law enforcement like we did. We don't value teachers like we did. We don't value some of the folks who are on the front lines trying to make our society a better place. And I think that's a real frustration. I think the other thing that I would change is the overemphasis on how test scores are that static point of reference and a good and I think valuable data point for us to understand where kids are at, but not the end all be all. And so I'm somewhat encouraged by what I've seen a little bit recently in New York State and out of the federal government about giving us a little bit more flexibility around how standardized tests are used for teacher evaluation. And I think that there's a place for that, but I think there was way too strong an emphasis over the last several years on that. And too strong an emphasis in a couple of ways. I think there was too strong an emphasis from the government point of view. And I, and I do think that there was an overreaction and an overcorrection then led into this whole parents opting out of having their students take some of those standardized tests in grades three through eight throughout New York State. I think that that was an overcorrection. I think that, that there was some real misinformation that was going on around those. I really don't think that in taking assessments harms students. I think that we put so much pressure on it and within right. the system for you know, a lot of complicated reasons. But I think that that led to a narrative that didn't wind up helping us get to a good place with trying to figure out where kids are really at in their learning, because that's what assessments ought to be about. Right. Now, Matt, what have you read that our listeners should read and why? Well, I would say not the quantitative statistics book that I'm reading now, but... What? (laughs) It's it's a little cliche at this point, but I think the thing that I've read probably in the last five years that just resonate is Carol Dweck's The Growth Mindset Work. I think it's incredibly important and it translates into every aspect of your life, your professional life, your personal life, how you raise your kids. I actually asked each of my kids to read that book and then apologized to them afterwards for how often we wound up praising them for being smart or being talented instead of working hard. Right. I think that there's so much emphasis on the wrong thing and it's so pervasive and it's so subtle. Let me give you an example. I was in a pre-K teacher's room the other day doing an observation and she was implementing a new system of checking for understanding with her pre-K kids. Rudimentary you know, way of doing that, just the thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs sideways kind of thing. But the conversation that we had afterwards was so fantastic because you know, we talked about her wanting to really get a, a better understanding of what her kids know and allowing for the classroom culture where it's okay for the kids to say, I don't know. Because when a kid gives a teacher a thumbs up and the teacher then says, oh, that's great, Johnny, you know that. Then the kid sitting next to Johnny who was going to give a thumb sideways might change their thumb to up because they just saw how happy that made their teacher that Johnny knew the material. I think that the desire for kids to please their teachers and the desire for kids to be part of a community of learners that winds up having more emphasis on 
everybody knowing things than on everybody being okay with where they are is a really subtle trap that's just easy to fall into and great educators do this. And so the conversation they had with this teacher was so affirming because you know she was really struggling with how to reward all the kinds of things that you want to reward, but also create that positive climate and culture where the kids who just aren't there yet are okay with not being there yet. And I think that that's really important. It certainly is. And as you tell me that story, and I'm sure the listeners get this as well, to me, it says that you've created that kind of environment too for your staff, where you're listening to them and you're also implementing that same growth mindset where you want to make sure that you're pouring into them and at the same time helping them to grow, empowering them. That's pretty awesome. Trying to. All right. So, Matt, you have a lot of responsibilities. What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind? It starts usually the night before. I'll you know, review the calendar, what's coming up when I'm at home. I'll try to clear the decks of any emails or communication that needs to happen before the next day starts. I'd say it's pretty typical for me to continue to work on that as I'm home in the evening, sort of chipping away at, at that kind of stuff. And then the drive-in is important. And so it's one of two things for me. It's either thinking about, to some extent, sometimes rehearsing how you want critical conversations to go or important conversations to go. How do you rehearse? I'm curious. I don't actually do it out loud, although some people do, and I think that that's great. Uh But for me, it's more just thinking through Mm-hmm. what is the main thing that I want to communicate? What are the likely responses and how I might try to respond depending on what response you get? And then just being open to the fact that we're talking about people. And so the conversation could go in a different direction that you're not anticipating and being okay with that. So that's the one way. And the other way is just to not think about it. Because Sometimes we overthink, sometimes we overplan, sometimes we can get stuck in our heads about things. And so I'll either listen to music or listen to a podcast or uh, just do something for me to have a break in my mental uh, stimulation. And what about maintaining balance? Yeah, incredibly important. I'm probably not the poster child. Uh, But I will say this, when I was a younger administrator and coming up, I had a a superintendent, a man named Rick Amundsen, who really valued family. You know, he would always say, family comes first. And so if I had to go be at one of my kids' sporting events, or we had an issue with a relative who was sick, or, you know, something that, that had come up, not once did he ever ask me to neglect that for something work related. And I've tried to do the same for the team here. And finding a balance is tricky. And some days it works and some days it doesn't. But creating the climate where you're consistently telling people and then following through that way, that if they have something come up in their family, they need to take care of that. That Mm. should come first. The problem with these jobs is that you can work 24 hours a day, seven days a week and not finish. Right. And so you have to stop sometimes. And I need a reminder of that just as much as everybody else. Well, you know, I want to tell you, Matt, that What keeps coming up about you is how you value those you lead. Because being concerned about their life balance speaks volumes. It says that you really care, that you value their work and their family. And that's pretty awesome. Well, it was a gift that was given to me. And it's certainly something that I try to pay forward. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that. Now, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? Oh, probably during the most stressful times, I'd probably try to remind myself that uh, everything changes. If things are not going well, it's not permanent. And if we're in a really good period of time, uh, you can be assured that a new challenge is on the horizon that will test us. We will get through it one way or the other and try to enjoy the journey a little more and not get 
caught up in the minutiae that can bog us down. I appreciate that advice. And it's certainly something that really hits home for me right now. So thank you. <laughs> now, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners that we haven't touched on? I guess I would just try to say to anybody who's still listening, thanks for hanging in. Hopefully you found some value in this and do your best to have fun along the way. Like I said earlier, these are stressful jobs. These can be nonstop kinds of jobs. And so if we can't have fun with each other while we're going through some of the challenges of trying to provide an experience for our kids where they can become the best versions of themselves, then we're missing an opportunity with each other. And so try to smile, try to laugh, try to have some fun. Matt, I want to thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a fantastic day. You too. Take care. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.